All right. Um, if, you, uh, if you remember where we are, where we've been the last few weeks, we are looking at uh, the knowledge of God, seeking to understand a little bit more about who God is, and, um, and we'll probably wrap this part up in the next couple of weeks, and then we'll go into the Trinity for uh, at least one week. And then um, I've got a couple different things in mind, so I'm not sure exactly which, which direction I'll take this uh, after that, but we'll probably change things up just a little bit for a, a brief season before we kind of come back to the knowledge of God. Um, but before we do get into today's topic, which is particularly apt, and you'll see why in just a moment, uh, I want to just take a second to review where we have been over the last few weeks. Um, we have essentially established at the very beginning of this study, uh, how do we know what we know about God? This is a huge topic, right? Who could presume to say, we're going to learn about God, right? You couldn't, you couldn't do that unless God had revealed himself to you. That's the only way, that's, that's the basis of our understanding of who God is, is that he has revealed himself to us. And so we said at the very beginning, it's important to identify the ways that he has revealed himself to us. How has he revealed himself to us? It's up on the screen, so it, you're kind of cheating. Yeah. How has he revealed himself to us? Yeah, he has revealed himself to us through his word. And one of the ways it, that his word has been revealed to us is orally. What does that mean, Shannon? What does that mean that God has revealed himself to us orally? Yeah, okay. So there's through the prophet. He's communicated verbally, right? The, one way is through the prophets. He has told the prophets of old, I will put my words in your mouth. You will go forth and you will speak, and the words that you speak will be my very words. This is the reason uh, Elijah could say, Thus says the Lord, or Isaiah could say, Thus says the Lord. And I can't, all right? At least not without a Bible there, okay? Like, I, I, I can't. Uh, Elijah can, I can't. Because God has put his words directly in Elijah's mouth. He, he, what he speaks is God's very words. So that's certainly one way, through the prophets. Audibly. He's opened up the clouds and just spoke to people. Terrified them to no end, but he just speaks out of the clouds. We saw this a couple weeks ago in Jesus' baptism. We'll see this several more times throughout the Gospels, the Mount of Transfiguration. We see this in the Old Testament as well. He speaks to Moses out of a cloud. I mean, there's several places in the Old Testament where it's clear that God just speaks verbally. All right? What else? How else? Through Jesus. Jesus is identified in John as the Word of God. And so he is the visible, physical representation of God's very own words. Everything that he speaks is straight from the mouth of God, the mouth and mind of God. All right? And last, but certainly not least, the Scriptures. That's, that's kind of where we come in, right? Go ahead, Timothy. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, which, which, which even speaks to a bigger point. The, the comment that he made, in case you couldn't hear, was that if you don't have the Bible written in your language, once you do get it written in your language, 
The idea God speaks my language is incredibly powerful. And uh, there's a couple of things that I, that I think are worth noting about that, and we haven't touched on this too much, but what we're looking at here is, uh, is kind of where we come in. How, do, how can we now, let's say 2,000 years removed from John the Baptist or Jesus or any prophet that came before them, we're 2,000 years removed from them. How do we know who God is? How, has, how do we know this hasn't been lost in translation? Well, what we have in front of us is the written word of God. We believe that it's inerrant, it's, fa- it's infallible, and it's original manuscripts. And what, what we have in front of us is a reliable transmission of the very words of God so that what we understand out of it is actual truth about who God is. One of the things, though, that I, I, I want to reiterate, and uh, I, I think it's, it's, it's a very important point, um, there, there's a, a mystique about the original languages that the Bible was written in. Right, you'll hear this. You'll hear this from time to time. Um, that well, in the Greek, this says da 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 da. In the Hebrew, this says this or that. And some of those things can be very important, and some of those things can give clarity and understanding. But there's a reason that you don't have a Greek manuscript sitting on your lap. There's a reason that on Sunday morning I don't read from the Greek. New Testament, because God has allowed his word to be translated since the beginning. That's not true of a lot of other religions. That's not true of a lot of other texts. Um, The Quran is one that obviously has been translated, but a Muslim will tell you that it's that original translation that is the truth, right? And if you don't have the original translation, which is spoken by 1% of the Arabic-speaking public, um, then you don't have the uh, real Quran. That's not true of the Bible. So when we come to the Greek or the Hebrew, it, it's helpful. But what we have in front of us in the English is a reliable uh, translation. It's, it's good, and God has allowed His Word since the beginning to be translated for us um, so that when we read it, we can trust that even though it's not in the Greek or the original Hebrew or Aramaic, it is, um, it is the words of God. So it's markedly different from other religions, yeah. Um, so we have the scriptures that are in front of us. We can trust them. They're reliable. If we don't have that as our base, if we didn't start there, then anything we talk about in subsequent weeks doesn't really matter because we haven't established that we actually can know anything about God. But the Bible tells us that we, we absolutely can. What we have in front of us is inerrant and infallible. Um, now, as far as where we've been in the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at the attributes of God, how God has identified himself to us in these manuscripts in the, in, in the Bible. How has he revealed himself to us? And really, we've tried to just think about it in two different categories, okay? Well, one kind of way he has revealed himself to us is, attribu- is in attributes that only he has, and that he's very clear only he has those attributes. We call those the incommunicable attributes of God. He does not share those with anybody, meaning that you and I don't have access to those kinds of attributes, they're only his. He tells us about them, but we don't have access to them. They don't, we, we can't partake in any of those. What, what would be some of those? Be an example of some of those. 
Yeah, omnipresence. I am in one place at one time. That is not true of God. He is in all places at all times. So these are incommunicable attributes of God. And then we have the communicable attributes of God. These are the attributes that he actually imparts to us. They actually can become part of our very character. They're attributes that belong to him that he is sharing with us. Now, we talked about it at the very beginning. Look, look with me at James chapter 1 before we start. James chapter 1. James chapter 1, verse 17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So what does that tell us about good gifts? What does it tell us about good gifts? They all come from Him. Now, we talked about when we first read that verse, the context that it occurs in. Because for us, a good gift is a house, right? That's a good gift. A good gift might be a child. That's a good gift, right? He doesn't just identify those things. He also identifies things like trials. Because... Out of the trial comes what? What does he say up there? Perseverance, endurance. Out of the trial comes an attribute of God, patience. From our trials, we gain patience. But what that also says about God and what we believe to be true about the communicable attributes of God, he owns everything. All good things belong to him. They are his. So anything that we get that's good is God imparting that to us. Does that make sense? You understand that? Okay, because we're going to really apply it today. Okay, and it's going to, we're going to see how the culture uh, does not agree with us. All right, but that's the premise of these communicable attributes that God owns everything that's good. And so anytime we get anything that's good, whether it's a trial that produces endurance or whether it's poverty that produces gratitude or whether it's wealth that produces humility, whatever it is, if it's good, God gave it because it's his to begin with. Okay? All right. Now we. Yes. Yeah. We're going to talk about more about that today. Um, so we took the communicable attributes of God and we broke them down into a few categories. There's attributes of, of God's being, there's mental attributes, moral attributes, and attributes of purpose. And so we're in the middle of this list looking at uh, the various uh, approaches in these in these categories. And so we've talked about God being a spirit. And what does that mean that God is a spirit? Doesn't have a body, right? Doesn't have a body. He's invisible. I guess you would be another way of, of saying that. He doesn't have a body. Um, but that also means that he can't be contained. He is everywhere. Now, how is that a communicable attribute? Yeah, he gives us a spirit 
with which we can do what? Worship Him. Commune with Him. So He gives us part of His attribute so that we can actually know Him. So that we can uh, understand who He is. Um, He has knowledge. Now, He has perfect knowledge, which would make Him omniscient. He can know everything. Uh, But He has imparted that to us, right? So what that means then when we talk about uh, knowledge, or, or even as we talk about in a minute, wisdom... Any time we come to know something that is actually true, that's his gift to us. Right? Understood? Yes. All right. Uh, oh, skip two. Uh, wisdom. It basically means that God is, uh, God's wisdom means that God always chooses the best goals and the best means to that goals. To those goals. Which, which also speaks to his plan for our life. When we look at what God has planned for our lives, if he really is truly wise, then everything that he has laid out is the best means to the end goal. That's the reason, like we talked about last or this past Sunday, we can say that to those that love God and are called according to his purpose, all things work together for good. We know that not only because he's good, but because he is also wise. So that means the suffering and the trials that we go through are all going to produce that end means, and it's the best path to that end goal. He is truthful. What does it mean that God is truthful? What does it mean to me that God is truthful? I can trust what he says. I can trust what he says. That when I read the Bible, I'm actually coming to know the real God. He's not lying to me. He could, if he chose to, he could maybe play the evil genius, but he doesn't. He's truthful. And so what he's telling me is true. He's not only truthful, but he's good. So that I, even though trials come, I can trust that in the end it's going to produce my good because I know he is good. And so therefore nothing evil is going to come from him. It's all going to be good. Now, Questions about those as we've kind of reviewed. That's obviously a quick summary of everything that we've talked about in the last few weeks. Any questions about that? Lingering questions? No, it's just a comment that in a culture that we refuse to acknowledge sin, the evil that we see going on, they don't have an answer for it. That's right. But God does. Because we see the example of evil done to his son, but God said, I'm going to use that. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Um, okay. So let's look at some scriptures. Who will take for me First uh, John 4, 8, and 10? All right, Shannon. Who will take John 17, 24? All right, Timothy. Uh, who will take John 3, 35? All right, uh, Lacey, if you'll do that. Uh, who will take John 14, 31? Susan, if you'll take that. Um, Romans 5, 8. All right, uh, either one of you. Go ahead, Jeff. You can take it. All right, when you have 1 John 4, 8, go ahead and read that for me. 4, 8, and 10. But anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. This is real love. It is not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sin. John 17, 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may 
John 3.35. Okay. John 14.31. Romans 5.8. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What attribute in those passages do we see of God? Love. Love. This is a particularly apt one because it's, it's Valentine's Day, right? <laughs> so I felt like it is it, totally by chance. It didn't even occur to me that this landed on Valentine's Day until this morning. That's how sad that is. Uh, but but um, it just so happened to be there. So the definition, as we're going to define uh, love, at least as it pertains to God, it means that God eternally gives of himself to others. Let me first ask the question. How can God eternally Give himself to others. Yeah, did you hear what Blake said? The, the Trinity. Do you hear what Jesus said in John 17? Who had John 17? Timothy, read, read that again. Listen very closely to what Jesus prays. What does Jesus pray there? What is he praying? Disciples be with him and see his glory. Why does he have glory? Because the Father loved him from before the foundations of the world. So what we see existed in the triune Godhead, God being three persons, is love that existed before anything else existed. So God loving, first of all, is that all of this was before the foundation of the world. This was a part of who God is before anything ever, ever existed. He had a love for Jesus Christ, and though Jesus doesn't mention it in his prayer, we would say of the Holy Spirit as well. The three of them shared love before the foundations of the world. Now, if we think about that too long, our brains will just turn into popcorn, right? <laughs> They'll just heat up and just explode because that's really hard to wrap your mind around, and indeed you can't. But to know that love from God existed before the foundations of the world, he has always been love. In fact, I think it was Shannon that read in 1 John 4. What did you read, Shannon? For God is love. What does it mean that God is love? Okay, without God, there is no love. Right? Now think about this for just a second. We've been talking about the communicable attributes of God. They're all, they all belong to Him. They're good gifts. They all belong to Him. We learn love is one of those gifts. It belongs to Him. So then, he can dish it out whenever he wants, right? He can give to us the capacity to love. 
But what it also means, as, uh, as David pointed out, that he sets its definition. Love is not just an arbitrary thing that anyone gets to define. He defines it as he gives it out. Does that make sense? No? Okay, okay. Okay. Um, certainly, we can talk about more of those things later. Because now we're, we're talking about love and then also the end times. <laughs> Too confusing. Yeah. From love entirely. Yeah. Um, yeah, but if you, if you think about um, the way our, our, our culture begins to define love, how does the culture define love? Liking another person. That's exactly it. All right, or it's close enough. That, uh, but the problem is that if God isn't the one setting the definition for that love, then it's not love. If it isn't the kind of love that has been identified clearly in Scripture, then it's something else entirely. Because the only way that it can actually be love if it's the kind of love that God clearly defines. It was his to begin with. Does that make more sense? Does that make any sense? Um, So if everything's in a storehouse, if all good gifts are in a storehouse, then anything that we have that's good, love being one of those things, it has to come from God. And the only way we can know it is to actually know who God is. Actually, participate in that kind of love. Jeff, you have a question. Um, at my mom's old church back home, it seemed like every single wedding, the pastor would have the same sermon. And it would be on the, in Greek, there are four different words for love. Yeah. And there was one that was... You saw, saw me wince whenever you said that. Go ahead. Um, that, that question didn't go where I thought it was going to go. Yes. So we would say, uh, we would say yes. Any way that we know love truthfully, it's from God, period. Now, then becomes the debate of like, well, what is tr- truthful love? What is true love and what is, what is false love? There's, I think I've heard that sermon maybe a hundred times in my life, uh, the four different kinds of love. And it's, it's interesting, a lot of that comes from Peter and Jesus' interaction at the end of the book of John, where Jesus looks at Peter, having already denied him, and says, Peter, do you love me? Do you agape me? People say in the sermon. And Peter says, I phileo you. I, I love you. I, I phileo you, which is a, a brotherly love. He says, Peter, do you agape me? Peter says, I, I phileo you. Um, and so there's a lot made of those interactions. But if you do a study of the book of John, 
the love that's used, he doesn't care about the terms. <laughs> he just uses them interchangeably. In fact, they're speaking Aramaic to one another. So it's, <laughs> it's, it's <laughs> the distinction's not important, right? Uh, what's being said there is, do you love me? If you love me, then feed my sheep. And um, so it, it's, uh, but, yet, but to answer your question, yes. Uh, if we know love truthfully, it comes from God. Whether it's, uh, especially if it's uh, man and wife, husband and wife love. Um, in fact, that's a very important way we understand, we understand God's love is through the marital union that he created, right? This is the way he helps us to understand that love, yeah. Yeah, good question. Does that, does that make sense? Does that help yeah. at all? Yeah, um, yes, yes. Any, any, any way it's been identified in a language, any way it's been called love in any language, I'm sure, uh, sure, of course, yeah. Um, now, how, then the question is, how has God identified his love throughout time? How has he made his love known to us? How has he made his love known to us? Who wants to read the first one up there? Somebody read it. Greater love has no one than this than, than he lay down his life for his friends. All right? What about the next one? Romans 5.8. Romans 5.8. God shows his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Last one? So every single one of those verses identifies a very similar way in which God has revealed his love. What is that? What did you say, Lori? Sacrifice. Self-sacrifice. In fact, the, the primary way in Scripture that God demonstrates his love toward us the way that we understand it, the way that we come to know it, the way we've been introduced to it, is that he sacrificed himself. Jesus even identifies himself, greater love has no one than this, but that he laid down his life for his friends. And right after that, he says, I call you friends. He's telling them he's going to lay down his life for them. This is the way that we have been introduced to God's love, that he has sacrificed himself for us. So, how do we know God's love? He demonstrates it. Otherwise, we would never even be, begin to be able to understand it, right? Does that make sense? Questions about that? Thoughts? Comments? Clear as a bell, clear as mud. So he models it. Yeah. Now, uh, the Bible actually goes a little bit further. It's not just that he demonstrates a self-sacrificing love. It's also love that is for the benefit of another. 
So God has not only just sacrificed himself for us, he has, out of his own volition, decided to love us. It was a conscious decision that he made to decide to love us. He demonstrated it in self-sacrifice. And what is the purpose of that sacrifice? What's the purpose of that sacrifice? For our benefit. What's, what, what, do we, what do we gain from it? Salvation. Salvation. We gain more of him, right? We gain eternal life. Essentially, he has not only demonstrated it in self-sacrifice, but he has, he, has, he has not only sacrificed himself, but it has been for the benefit of the one he sacrifices for. Now, think about marriage for just a moment. Ephesians 5.22. Turn there. Quick. Ephesians Paul is applying all that he's taught already to the husband-wife relationship. And he, he addresses the wives first, and he says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of that wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, uh, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. But then verse 25, how do husbands love their wives? As Christ loved the church, and what? gave himself up for us. So when God demonstrates his love for his church through Christ, the only way we're able then to replicate that in the husband-wife relationship is first by looking at how God has already demonstrated that to us in Christ. That it was self-sacrificial love, and who's the beneficiary of that love? Us. But the, the, the... Often, I think the way it plays out in, in marriage, and no, sinfully, I'm tempted in this direction. I'm sure no one else is. Um, is that you do things for the benefit of the other so that in the long run, you get paid back. <laughs> I, I, I'm sure I'm the only one that does that, right? Like, like I'll do that. I'll take out the trash for her, you know, because I know this will be, this is good. I know she wants this done. I'll do it without her ever having to even ask me. So that she won't jump down my throat if I go do this, right? <laughs> like, so I can go, look, honey, I cleaned the kitchen. I took out the trash. I, uh, I did all this. Uh, you care if I go to Starbucks for a couple hours? <laughs> you want to bathe the kids tonight? You know, or whatever, right? Like, so there's, there's, there's that's, that's not the case uh, for Christ and his love for the church, for God's love for us. It's demonstrated not only in self-sacrifice, but there's not a there's, there's not a, a, the expectation of payback. You can't. You physically can't pay him back. And so the expectation is then laid on the husband and the wife, and particularly the husband of this relationship, that not only does he, self does he sacrifice himself for his wife, he does it as Christ did for the church, which means that there's no expectation of payback in the end. Right? It's truly self-sacrifice. It, it becomes not self-sacrificial if you expect to be the beneficiary of it. You haven't actually sacrificed yourself. You've sacrificed the other person 
by making it look like you sacrificed yourself. It's a genius move if you really think about it. <laughs> only, a, only, a, only a true wicked sinner can pull it off. Uh, <laughs> look how much he loves me. He sacrificed himself. <laughs> But here's the reason why I think this is really important. We have this question going on in our culture, what is love? And I think, by and large, we've been, uh, been lied to. There's the Greco-Roman idea of, of love, which loosely translates to infatuation. We see it today in the iconography of Cupid, little flying dwarf with wings and a little arrow. And what does Cupid do? The mythological thing that Cupid does. What does he do? Makes two people fall in love. How? With an arrow. arrow, All right? Pulls back his his bow, shoots you right in the tuchus with an arrow. And what happens to you? Yeah. You become dumb. All of a sudden, you get struck by this wave of emotion, okay, and love now happens to you. Love happens to you. It's this incontrollable or uncontrollable urge. And, and we say things like, follow your heart, right? The heart goes where it wants. I, I can't control what my heart tells me. That's an incredibly dangerous idea of love. I mean, it comes from the Greeks and the Romans. This idea that it just washes over us. It's this uncontrollable desire. We follow it to its, to its end. We go wherever it wishes us to go. Our heart leads us to fall in love with this person. We've fallen in love with him. And so now what? We stay in our marriages so long as I'm still in love. When people divorce, I'm no longer in love with you. It's this idea that you can fall in and out of love because love is this uncontrollable desire that pushes you wherever it wants you to go. And I think to some degree, we buy into that in the church. And so people, when they stop feeling that desire of love, they say, I'm really worried. (laughs) I've fallen out of love with my spouse. If this is the reality of love, this is really what love is, we're all in trouble. Every single one of us at any moment are deeply in trouble. Our wife or our husband could just walk out at any moment because they don't feel that kind of love. That would be an example, well, it's not even really love, but that would be an example of something we call love that's not really love and certainly doesn't come from God. It's, it's wicked. Translates to nothing more than simple lust. There's a feeling that I have for this person. Deep down is just a, as an uncontrollable desire. As soon as I don't feel that anymore, I move on to the next relationship. 
As some pastors have identified even, uh, I really like this idea too, is that we've, we've then moved on to not only is this, this uncontrollable desire, but then we, we search for the one. We go around from person to person, like, ah, just not the one, right? It's mythical one. We found the one. We marry them. All of a sudden, ah, turns out they're not the one. He leaves his towel on the floor. Definitely not the one, right? <laughs> it's this constant thing that we're trying to pursue because we've been persuaded by this idea in the Greco-Roman culture that it's an uncontrollable desire. That's what love is. So now look at our culture. How does our culture define love? I can't tell you who you should love. Your heart will tell you who to love. That's the very idea that's going on in our culture right now. It's driven by this same kind of really uh, mythological, cupid kind of notion. Heart goes where it wishes. Who can know it? There's a huge problem with that in the Bible, following your heart. What's the biggest problem with that? Yeah, sin. Uh, Ezekiel says, did you say Ezekiel, David? Did you say Ezekiel? Oh, deceitful, yeah. The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Who could know it? Your heart fools you. But instead, what the Bible identifies as love is actually a choice. It's a decision. It's an act of volition. It's an act of the will. Uh, Vody Bauckham defines it like this. I love it. It's perfect. It's an act of the will accompanied by emotion that leads to action on behalf of its object. I'll say it again. It's an act of the will accompanied by emotion that leads to action on behalf of its object. So it's not, certainly not devoid of emotion. Sure, there's absolutely emotion. It's just not driven by emotion. It's driven first by a decision. It's an act of volition. Now, surely this would be defined for us in Scripture. Surely God has demonstrated this. If this is really what love is, if it's an, it's a, first it's an act of the will, it's accompanied by emotion, and it's, it leads to action on behalf of its object, surely we would see this in Scripture, and indeed we do. This is how God defines what He has done for people. Now, you'll notice the verse references are from what? Deuteronomy, which is in which half of the Bible? It's in the Old Testament, all right? So this isn't, we're not just talking about Jesus. God demonstrates his love and that while we were yet sinner, Christ died for us. What about those people in the Old Testament? How do they know God's love? Well, here it is in Deuteronomy. Yet the Lord set, this is Deuteronomy 10, 15. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. So basically, here's God deciding the heart is a, uh, in well, even in our culture, the heart is a deciding factory, right? It's, a, it's where your, your decisions come from. At least that's the way we use it. The Lord set his heart to love these people. He decided he was going to love them. Moses knows this. He's telling all the children of Israel, God has decided to love you. 
You wouldn't know it unless he had decided to love you. He has decided to love you. And guess what? You can't do anything about it because he has decided to do it. He has set his heart to love you. That's it. He made the choice. Then Deuteronomy 7, 7. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. So he's saying it's not, it's not because of anything you did. It's not a response to something that you did that God has to now repay it with his love. This is completely of his own volition. He chose you out of, out of everybody on the face of the planet. He chose to love you. That's it. You didn't do anything to merit it. Then he says to them in Deuteronomy 7, 9, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. He's bound to it. He's never going to leave it. They abused this covenant time and time again, yet he said, nope, I'm steadfast. I've set my heart to it, and I'm never going to move from it. It is an act of the volitional will to say, I am going to love this person. Then... There's an action that takes place on behalf of the one that's receiving the love. How did it play out? On Calvary. Ultimately on Calvary. But I think every one of us can identify times we've seen it in our own lives. Where we know God has demonstrated his love for us time and time again. I, I think one of the things that ha, has just always just kind of sat really heavy on me is uh, First Peter, I, I can't remember the verse reference, I want to say it's First Peter 5. Cast your cares on him because he cares for you. He tells us, not only do I love you, I want you to talk to me. I want you to take all the burdens and all the cares that you have and I want you to cast them upon me. Even just in the act of prayer, God is demonstrating his love for us. Questions, comments, concerns, thoughts? Go ahead, Jeff. Um, so if, I've actually had this conversation recently. If you were to present the gospel to a non-Christian and you're to say, God loves you, he loves everyone in the world, and they say, well, what about those people that weren't Jewish in the Old Testament? Everyone else before Jesus that wasn't Jewish, did God have love for them? Um, yes. He gave them the Jews, <laughs> right? Same thing we would say about the people now in the world. He gave us Jesus. He could have not and had every right to not, but he did. 
I think, I think what goes, there's, there's two uh, ways to think about that question. And I think there's actually an underlying assumption. The underlying assumption to that question is everybody's innocent, right? And here are these innocent people that are suffering. And that's not true at all. So I, I think when anytime I, I get presented with questions like that, I always have to answer the underlying assumption. The underlying assumption being everyone is innocent. The truth is no, not everyone. No, no one's innocent. And because they think everyone is innocent, then what do you do about these people? Well, God isn't loving to punish them. Actually, everybody is deserving of punishment. End of sentence. Period. So if everybody is deserving of punishment, then what is an act of mercy? What is God then stooping down and saving even one? How can you define that any other way but love? Anybody that experiences salvation should know that's love. Right? So the verse we read a minute ago, John 3.16, you can probably all quote it in your sleep. For God so loved the world, that what? He gave his only begotten son. So here's, here's the world in front of him. Instead of just wiping them off the face of the planet, disintegrating them in space, instead of a number of other possibilities, annihilation completely, instead, what did he do? Gave his only begotten son. So that what? Whoever believes in him can have eternal life. He defined the pathway that they could come to him, just like he did in the Old Testament, New Testament, it doesn't matter. Define the pathway that they could come to him. But you can't define it any other way than love. That he chose not to destroy us all. That, that's the... I, I think usually when I say, well, he could have just destroyed us all. Why didn't he do that? Then you get to the base assumption. Well, why would he do that? Because we're all wicked. <laughs> so, good question. Questions? Other questions like that? It's God that imparts. It has to be. It comes from Him. Every good gift comes from above. There's a, a kid's book that we got called Full Moon Rising. F-O-O-L, Full Moon Rising. It is a wonderful book. And it starts off with that verse that made me think of it. Uh, everything that you have is a gift. And if, if it is a gift, then why do you boast as though you didn't receive it? You know, as though it were not a gift. Um, very good. So parents out there who have little kids, there's none in here. But <laughs> well, the porters, <laughs> grandkids, it's great. Full moon rising, it's really, really good. Um, any other questions, comments, thoughts like that? Right. Yeah, and that and that's that particularly shows up, I think, in our culture. I mean, you could na- you could name a number of ways where those kinds of things show up, but. Um, uh, Either, either adultery, divorce, uh, uh, homosexuality, all, kind, all kinds of... Now there's a, a number of other things, uh, polyamory and, and different things like that that are now coming 
uh, about and will be pushed into the fore. All of these are attempts to insert ourselves into the conversation of what love actually is. And, um, but truthfully, God has defined it. He, he is the only one that gets to set its, its terms. This is what it is. And inside of marriage, as a, as a, for instance, he defined it as between a man and a woman for a lifetime. And so since he set that as the definition, and he's the only one that gets to define it, that's what we have to affirm as true. It's revealed to us in Scripture time and again. Go ahead, Jeannie. Um, you, know, you know, it's uh, when it comes to Scripture, we believe it's the sword. So it would be a bit like somebody, I've heard this, this is a borrowed illustration, it would be a bit like somebody saying, I don't believe your sword is sharp. How would you prove it? Would you talk about the history of metal? <laughs> You'd poke them with it. Um, so I, I think that typically the, the way that I find um, best is to say, well, let's interact with the words of Scripture and let's see if they hold true. And so it just depends on where that person's coming from as to where I would start. But one, con- I had an extended conversation with a friend of mine um, over coffee. He agreed to meet with me once a month for a year, about a year, maybe a little longer. And we, uh, we talked about Jesus. And it's interesting when you start talking about the gospel with somebody that does not believe, and they say... Um, well, I believe the things that Jesus said. I, I, I think, you know, I think he was a, a wise man. I think he was a prophet. I think he was a good individual. They'll typically make claims about Jesus that Jesus doesn't make about himself, right? Or that he, he actually refutes. So the best way, I think, to interact is to say, well, let's go to the words of Jesus. Let's see what he actually said. And then let's evaluate. Let's see how that, how that hits you. So when you, when you go to, I am the way, the truth, the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, what do you think about that? Why do you uh, call me uh, Lord, but don't do what I command you? What about the words of Jesus in Revelation? Those get left out a lot. It's like the words of Jesus in, in the Gospels. Okay, that seems like a softer, nicer Jesus than the ones we find in Revelation. The ones in Revelation are harsh. Well, if you read the two together, you'll see that they're really actually the same. <laughs> it gives you the, uh, a fuller picture, you know? I mean, so I think interacting over the words of the scriptures as best as possible, coming back to the text, well, let's see if the Bible actually makes that claim. You believe this about Jesus, let's see if the Bible actually makes that claim. And I think this is always the best way. Poke them with it. Yeah, 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 let's see. Yeah. Good questions. Anything else? Yeah. <laughs> I see what you did there, Timothy. Oh, man. Jokes, jokes. All right. Um, I think uh, one other thing that we should 
make mention of um, as we look at, as we close up here. I want to just uh, read through these scriptures because they tell us, now what? So this is the love of God. And what, is this, what does it mean we should do? And I think there's at least, there's more than this, but there's at least three ways that that directly applies to our own actions. So who'll take Matthew 22? All right, uh, Hannah. And then Susan, if you'll take 1 John 2, 15, 4, 19, and 5, 3, you get the long one. Uh, who'll take, uh, why don't you take 1 John 4, 11, too, while you're at it? <laughs> uh, and then John 13, 35, Blake, if you'll take that one. All right, Matthew 22. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. All right, First John. Susan, you get the long ones. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. We love because he first loved us. This is love. Okay, so in the first two bullet points, he sa- how, how does he say that, what does that mean for us? God loves us, so what? So what should? Yeah, love God. That's the first, I, first point that he identifies, love God, right? So, so the first response then is to love him in return, right? Second is then, do not love the world, do not love the world right? Somebody read, who's got John 13, 35? By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So then another way is loving one another, right? So love God, love him in return, love one another, and then last is John 14, 15, I'll read it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. What is that? Obedience. So, if you've ever been in a place where you can tell the people don't love one another, particularly in churches, it's disturbing. Because what does it say? They don't know God. crazy is that? If you think about that for just a second, that people can gather together in a building under this very same word, and there can be warring parties. It's incredibly sad because it indicates they don't even know who God is. Remember, communicable attribute. It's his. He gives it. He demonstrates it. And then he expects it to be modeled by us 
toward others. Jesus ties this to forgiveness. How you forgive one another, how you respond to one another. Remember how he wraps up the Lord's Prayer? He mentions in the Lord's Prayer, he says, you know, Father, forgive us our, our trespasses. We forgive those who trespass against us. And he closed out the Lord's Prayer. And then he comes back to that. He goes, if you don't forgive others their trespasses, God's not going to forgive you your trespasses. How powerful a statement is that? The people that are mine respond in kind. Didn't mean for that to rhyme. (laughs) The people that are mine, they respond in kind. The way I have given to them forgiveness, they turn and then give to others forgiveness. They're gracious, they're merciful towards others. They're loving towards others. Otherwise, it's a testimony. They don't know who I am. Because if they did, they would know love. Let's pray.